Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about the American Revolution, in particular little-known stories of the American Revolution, important, obviously an important signal defining moment in the history of this country. But some of the stories that maybe we don't know but we should know, some of the people, the characters that we don't know, that we should know the full story of. And to help us understand those stories, I'm joined today by Professor Robert McDonald. Uh, Rob is Professor of History at the United States Military Academy at West Point. His bachelor's degree is from the University of Virginia. We share that, Rob. Wahoo! There we go. <laughs> he has master's degree from Oxford University and his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He teaches courses, um, really the range of American founding era courses, in particular the American Revolution course, which you teach for Ashbrook in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program, um, American founding, um, other courses on the Declaration of Independence. I do, and I'm teaching the uh, Early Republic for the uh, MAG program this week. Fantastic. And of course, then he's also teaching uh, at, the university, at his university, teaching uh, cadets there. Uh, in all kinds of courses related to the American founding and the American Revolution. Uh, He's not just a terrific teacher, although he is a terrific teacher. He's also a a widely published author with at least, as I counted, three books, I think, on Thomas Jefferson, one on George Washington and his protégés, all terrific reads and really interesting historical insight and great storytelling combined which I think is a rare talent among modern historians. Um, but Rob, thank you for those wonderful contributions to the field of history. Well, it's nice of you to say. I appreciate it. Thank you. And also, I should add, of course, he's, Rob is the editor of Ashbrook's Core Documents volume on the American Revolution. And we're going to be talking about a few of those documents today, actually, in these stories of the American Revolution. Um, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, let me just start by the question, the American Revolution. All right. When people think of it, they often think about the war for independence. They, 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 they conflate the revolution and the war. There's this very famous saying uh, from John Adams mm-hmm. who says, don't conflate those two things. What do you mean by saying the American Revolution? Well, what you all meant when you uh, invited me to... Uh, put together the core documents volume for the American Revolution was the period of the war for independence, Mm -hmm. um, as well as 
the, the period immediately um, preceding it. So the first document in the volume is from uh, 1760. I think it's James Otis's speech against writs of assistance. Um, and from there, we proceed into what historians call the imperial crisis with Great Britain. So the Stamp Act of 1765, the Townsend Duties of 1767, the Boston Massacre in 1770, the Tea Party in 73. Um, and then we go into this period where the British have um, essentially um, imposed great restrictions upon the American colonies. In retaliation for the Tea Party in 1774, the British imposed what they call the Coercive Acts. We call them the Intolerable Acts, shutting down Boston Harbor, um, outlawing regular meetings of uh, town councils, making it so that the Massachusetts Assembly is not allowed to meet for any purpose other than talking about how they might pay back the East India Tea Company, whose tea was destroyed when it was dumped into Boston Harbor. And then, of course, uh, things accelerate even further. In April of 1775, the British make the decision to march their troops through Lexington to Concord. Um, they hope to capture Sam Adams and John Hancock, if possible. Their main um, ob objective is to capture weapons of the Massachusetts militia and ammunition. Um, mm -hmm. Paul Revere, of course, right. and, and other Patriot riders make sure that people get word that the Redcoats are coming out. And, and so the British objective is never realized, um, but they do stumble into what will eventually be called the War for Independence. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the American Revolution, can, uh, the, the, that word revolution, I'm just thinking about it, if we're thinking about stories from the American Revolution, to my mind, when I'm thinking about a revolution, I, I say, what is a revolution? What do we mean by that word? I think I, I think there's at least two possible meanings, and I know that historians talk a lot about this, but mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to me to set the context for the stories of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, one is the idea of a revolution like a bicycle wheel, right? Starts at one point, revolves all the way around, and revolves all the way around, and comes back to where it started. Mm -hmm. And then there's the idea of a revolution going from point A, almost linear, to point B. Yes. So it's restoring the old or it's moving to something new. Mm -hmm. the, the people that you put in this wonderful volume for us, how do they understand the American Revolution? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I'll, I'll have to think on my feet here. Certainly, the way that you describe these two models of revolution um, is, is something that we can conceive of in a way that they can't, because there are two classic models. Um, one is the Glorious Revolution, 1688. Okay. And that's, that's the classic sort of circular revolution. We start with the good old days, um, and then things start to go haywire. And under James II, um, Parliament loses its voice, and the people of England fear that their liberties are imperiled. And so James II is removed, and William and Mary are brought in as the new monarchs who are going to respect the liberties of the people of England. And we've come full circle, and it's the good old days all over again. Okay. A little bit after the American Revolution, you have the French Revolution. Now, the French Revolution is supposed to be one of these point A to point B revolutions, uh -huh. right? You start with King Louis the whatever. I mean, when you're counting your kings in the teens, you, you know <laughs> right. it's a, this is it's a, a longstanding regime. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. Um, and you're supposed to end with liberty and fraternity and equality. Of course, the irony of the French Revolution is that it really is circular because you go from liberty and fraternity and equality to the reign of terror mm -hmm. and the rise of Napoleon and the wars of Europe and then Emperor Napoleon. Mm -hmm. And so you come full circle um, back to despotism again. What the American Revolution is supposed to be, I suppose, is in the eye of the beholder. Hmm. There certainly are elements 
um, of the American Revolution that are attempting to restore the good old days. The good old days um, before the French and Indian War, before the British started to um, intervene in our mm -hmm. internal affairs, when in the days of salutary neglect or benign neglect, Americans essentially could govern themselves all the way up to the ocean. You know, okay. as, as long as you were on land within Virginia, it was the Virginia House of Burgesses that was in control of the laws. Um, so there is this, de this desire to restore control to these colonies, which of course are going to start calling themselves states after July 1776. But there clearly is a desire to make good on the promises of the Declaration of Independence hmm. in July of 1776. I mean, we all know the magic sentence, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, semicolon, Mm -hmm. that, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. People realized in 1776 that the rights of all individuals to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and property are not being upheld. Mm -hmm. um, these are natural rights. These are rights that all human beings possess. Um, governments can deny these rights, but governments can't take these rights away. Mm -hmm. And clearly, um, you know, there are African Americans who are enslaved. Um, there are women who are not allowed under law in some places to own property in some circumstances. Um, there are religious minorities uh, who are persecuted in various ways. And you can see in a lot of these documents an attempt to get good with these principles, to, to become consistent um, upholders of these principles. And so, for example, you know, you begin to see in various uh, parts of formerly British North America, um, states or future states like Vermont mm -hmm. is not part of the 13 colonies, but it has a constitution in 1777 that outlaws slavery. Massachusetts will be done with slavery in 1783. In 1784, Rhode Island and Connecticut um, institute gradual emancipation plans, and other northern states will follow. Um, there's one document in the volume about a uh, really interesting and I think admirable individual named Heim Solomon. He's an immigrant from Poland, comes here pretty poor, but you know he's a real rags to riches story. Patriot, supporter of the American cause. Um, by the end of the war, he is one of the great financiers of the American Revolution. Hmm. Personally bankrolls the Continental Army for a couple of months. And he and a few members of his Philadelphia synagogue, he's a Jewish man, um, petitioned the, the government of Pennsylvania um, to remove a clause in the state's constitution which requires all Pennsylvania office holders to take an oath affirming their faith in both the Old and New Testament. Uh -huh. And obviously an observant um, Jew can't in good conscience take that oath. Right. And so, you know, he doesn't have any desire for office, but he certainly doesn't think that Jewish people should be precluded from serving in office. And while there's no immediate response to this petition, a few years later, Pennsylvania will have a new constitution and under the terms of the new constitution, you merely have to take an oath acknowledging um, your belief in divine providence and an eternal system of rewards and uh -huh. punishments. Okay. So now, observant Jews can um, take an oath and serve in public life. Right. So, so there is some, as you're saying here, there really is some movement from point A to point B. There it is. really is from the old order that was existed under the British colonial system. Mm -hmm. 
and the internal institutions and principles to a new order of the ages, as it says. There is. And uh, based on these principles that are articulated in things like the state constitutions, mm -hmm. natural rights of all people. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, the stories of the people in the, the revolution itself introduce us to someone from the American Revolution that we should get to know. So I have a favorite, and okay. uh, he appears actually in the preface to All the right. volume. He's not in one of the documents, but his name is Sam Whitmore. And uh, we encounter him in April of 1775 as an 80-year-old. So he's an 80-year-old wow. man, okay. and he is a two-time veteran who has twice served with British forces um, as a member of the Massachusetts militia, first in King George's War, um, and again in the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years' War. Mm -hmm. um, I believe both times he marches uh, north and uh, captures the French fortress at Louisbourg, okay. um, up in, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, in a way, he is the embodiment of the American people. Because I have to tell you, as I don't need to tell you, but I want to tell everyone who's listening, Americans during the colonial period were extraordinarily proud to be British. I mean, mm. to be British was to be free. After the glorious revolution... Now that's a, can I just stop? That's a really interesting comment mm -hmm. because the way a lot of probably our listeners now think is, oh, yeah, the British were so bad, so repressive, so oppressive, that obviously it was a terrible system in which everyone was oppressed mm -hmm. and enslaved. That's not how the Americans in the colonies at the time thought of it. Absolutely not. And in fact, you know, of course, Britain had a monarch, but the monarch was a constitutional monarch mm. with you know limited powers, um, who was part of what the British called their balanced constitution. Um, you know, various sectors of the population are represented. You have the House of Commons, you have the House of Lords, you have the monarchy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are limits imposed upon the British government that the British government agrees to, certain things that it is not supposed to do mm -hmm. um, in the English Bill of Rights. And um, this is a government that is based, and the Glorious Revolution is justified by John Locke in his second treatise on government. Um, he says, essentially, in the state of nature, we have rights you know, to life and liberty and property, um, things that are you know, gifts from God and that, that are necessary for us to function fully mm -hmm. as human beings. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is uh, essentially you know, what we leave the state of nature to secure. Right. In the state of nature, you have these rights, but, but they're endangered. You know, at any moment, someone could sneak up behind you and knock you over the head with a club and take your stuff, for right. example. Right, right. Right, so we, we form alliances with other people to secure our rights. That's why we have government. Um, and as John Locke observed in his second treatise, during the Glorious Revolution, those rights were imperiled. Those rights were being trampled upon. Mm. And, and that is what justified deposing James II and instituting the monarchy that was shared between William and Mary. So this is a big part of our British history. This is a big part of our British heritage. So the British themselves, through the Glorious Revolution, think of themselves as free or even the freest people of Europe. Absolutely. And Absolutely. the Americans living, the British colonials living in North America, share that same view. They do. And so, you know, here meets Sam Whitmore. I mean, he's a regular farmer. He's a regular mm -hmm. guy. Um, he is somebody who, you know, is uh, brought into service and he shoulders arms uh, against the French. 
And, you know, if there's any antithesis to English freedom, it's French despotism. Uh-huh. They have an absolute monarch. Um, you know, they have a, a, a system in place that, that doesn't respect the natural rights of individuals. And so when you fight with the British against the French, you're not only engaging in sort of great power politics, you're fighting for freedom. Mm. And, and uh, you know, I think Americans very much were fierce British patriots. You could even make the argument that they were more sincere in their British patriotism than the people who lived in England themselves. Um, you well, know, that's interesting. Well, yeah, I think in, in many respects, uh, you think about the, the, the distance we have, first of all, from London, this you know metropolitan capital. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about the, the relative, the relatively small size of our colonial governments. You consider the fact that um, we really do govern ourselves. Mm-hmm. You consider the fact that um, many more Americans are qualified for the franchise and can vote and can participate in the government of themselves and people in England because land here is so abundant. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we really put the flesh on the bones of freedom. I mean, we're living it here. Mm. It means a lot to us. And, you know, when the British begin to impose what we consider to be restrictions upon our liberties, you know, for example, the proclamation line of 1763, you know, we've just fought with the French to conquer all of this land west of the Appalachian Mountains. And yet the British say that American colonists cannot settle there. Uh Uh-huh. Well, well, what's up with that? I mean, you know, that land, we, we fought for that land. Some of us died for that land. Some of us lost brothers and husbands or limbs for that land. And the British flag flies over that land. But we're not allowed to move there? I mean, that, that doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. Or in 1765, the imposition of the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act is an act of parliament specifically designed to raise revenue from the Americans. Hmm. We have no representatives in parliament. I mean, you know, I know we live in morally uh, ambiguous times, but what do you call it when someone reaches into your pocket and takes your money without asking? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's stealing. <laughs> that's theft. And, and, you know, the government's supposed to protect our property, not take it from us without our consent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're developing a real sense of grievance against this government. And the evidence... Um, continues to pile up and up and up that, as you know, Jefferson writes in the Declaration of Independence, there is a long train of abuses and usurpations mm-hmm. making clear that it's Parliament's object to deprive us of our liberty. So do we see that kind of understanding, that kind of self-consciousness in an ordinary farmer, like the kind you're talking about? Does Do you see him going from proud British subject to, wait a minute, I'm not sure I want to be part of Britain anymore. I mean, we can certainly see that through the actions of Sam Whitmore, okay. if not through the words. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, he's a common guy. Right. He, his writings, to the extent that there were any writings, are lost to history. Um, but here's this 80-year-old man, all right? The British on April 19th, they row across the Charles. I feel sorry for these British soldiers. What a lousy day. They get up, you know, long before the crack of dawn. <laughs> um, they're rowed across the Charles. They, they plunge their feet into the cold and mucky waters of the Charles and, and then start this, you know, 18-mile march. Um, first through Lexington, Massachusetts, which they reach at dawn. The men there had been alerted that the Redcoats were on their way. Um, the local militia is out in force, standing its ground um, on the town green, impeding their pathway to, to Concord, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the war for independence begins. That's where the, the shot that's heard around the world rings out. 
And things don't go very well for the locals in Lexington. The British continue to press forward. They arrive in Concord. They're turned back at the North Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they beat what they hope to be an organized and orderly retreat back to Boston, um, you know, Americans in other communities who have also been alerted that the British are coming um, are, you know, in the wood line taking shots at the British, standing behind boulders and Once the British get to this uh, modern-day town named Arlington, Massachusetts, which was then known as Monotomy, Massachusetts, they come near the property of Sam Whitmore. So Sam Whitmore is behind his stone wall, and he has his musket, he has two pistols, and he has a sword that he took from the body of a French officer he had slain up at Louisburg. Wow. (laughs) And, and, And so Sam, you know, Whitmore's ready. And as the British come marching down the road, he uh, loads his musket and he aims it. And I picture him there with his 80-year-old hands, maybe a little bit shaky. Hmm. And he pulls the trigger and boom, down goes one red coat. And then he reloads and wow. he aims it again. And boom, down goes a second red coat. Well, at this point, hmm. um, you know, the red coats had figured out where the fire was coming from. Maybe they saw a shock of white hair stick out from the, uh, the stone wall. And they sent a detachment of men, bayonets fixed, um, you know, to, to neutralize the source of the gunpowder. So they hurl themselves over his fence, um, and he now has his two pistols in his hands. He's two fisting these pistols, and he fires them both. Boom, down goes the third redcoat. Wow. Um, they stab him 13 times with their bayonets. I mean, it's a great number. It's like once for each colony. <laughs> um, they shoot him in the face, and they wow. leave him for dead uh-huh. as he flails about with his sword. But guess what, Jeff? Guess what? Does he die? You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> he lives. Wow. For another 18 years to die a 98 year old citizen of a free and independent United States. Amazing. So it's just, it's a great story because he is so much and in so many ways the embodiment of American colonists who were once such fierce patriots mm-hmm. um, for, of, the, of the British government because it represented freedom. Um, to becoming fierce opponents when it came to threaten that freedom. Amazing. It's, uh, that's an incredible story. I mean, the fact that he survives and lives on to see an independent America and an independent Massachusetts. Absolutely. Incredible. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi. This is John Moser, Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country, and they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. Um, it's not all stories of men mm-hmm. in, in the collection. 
you have some really interesting stories that involve Amer- uh, women, American mm-hmm. women from the time of the revolution. Tell us about the story of Jane McCrae. Right. Well, Jane McCrae is a tragic figure. Um, it's first worth noting that throughout the war for independence, um, there were plenty of patriots, plenty of people who supported independence. Um, but there were people who were ambivalent and sat on the fence. Mm-hmm. And there were also people who were committed loyalists and right. took significant risk to um, uphold British government in America, um, who believed that, that that was the right thing to do. And Jane McRae was one of those people. Okay. So she's uh, the daughter of a New Jersey Presbyterian minister. And in 1777, she's about 25 years old. And she, uh, after the death of her father, moved uh, up to New York uh, in the Hudson Valley mm-hmm. uh, to live with her brother. And it, it is there that she meets a loyalist uh, British Army officer, a lieutenant named David Jones. Mm-hmm. She becomes engaged to Lieutenant David Jones. Now, Jones is part of a movement of forces that uh, are part of the British strategy to seize um, the, uh, the, the corridor between New York City and Canada. The British understand that if they can gain control of the Hudson River and Lake George, that they will be able to essentially isolate the New England colonies. Of course, right. They're still calling them colonies, by the way. Right, the New England right. colonies, we call them states. Okay, so they're going to kind of cut America in two. They will. That's their, that's their objective. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, militarily, uh, things start well for the British. Um, under the forces of John uh, Burgoyne, the, the British Army is successful in capturing uh, Ticonderoga on July 5th, 1777. Um, but things begin to slow down. Um, Americans realize that the British are making their move southward, and um, they do all sorts of things to impede their progress. They you know, cut down trees and have trees fall across roads. Mm-hmm. And the British, of course, are you know, burdened with uh, you know, not just troops on foot, but wagons and lots of supplies. And so at some points, they're only moving about a mile a day. Wow. Um, the British uh, Hessians, the Hessian allies of the British, are going to lose a battle near Bennington, Vermont. Um, the British are going to uh, fail to take Fort Stanwix. Um, and, and the Indian allies of the British, um, many, not all Indians, uh, the Oneida, for example, ally themselves with the United States, but many Indians can sort of see the writing on the wall. You know, if these colonies become free, if they become an independent nation, um, they are rapidly growing. The mm-hmm. English-speaking population of North America doubles pretty much every 20 years. So from a wow. Native American perspective, we're spreading across the continent almost like a plague. Right. Um, you know, with the British in charge, maybe there is some hope that, you know, Indian land claims will be preserved. So uh, the British have these Native American allies, including members of the Huron tri- tribe. And there's um, one individual in particular named Wyandot Panther who um, one day in the summer of 1777, somehow, the story's a little murky, encounters Jane McRae. Jane McRae, by the way, is, uh, in all the stories, she's known as being, you know, a really lovely individual and a physically beautiful Mm -hmm. um, person who has long flowing red hair, very distinctive. And, um, you know, there is a story that Americans fervently believe that may be true, that may not be true. The British deny it, although they're there seems to be at least circumstantial evidence that the British have made deals with the Indians um, to compensate the Indians for Patriot scalps. 
Hmm. So bring us the scalps of patriots who live in this area, and we will compensate you. Well, Jane McRae somehow gets scalped. And uh, Wyandotte Panther, who is the perpetrator of this crime, um, is brought to justice in front of the British Army. And General Burgoyne decides to issue him a pardon. And, uh, you know, this is an outrage. This is a tragedy. Mm. Um, And this is proof, in a way, that you may be a loyalist, um, and the British may claim that they're going to protect you and that they're going to look out for you. Um, But that claim may not be, in the end, um, a claim that is fulfilled. And, and so this has tremendous propaganda value. I was just going to say, was, did, did the story get out? Did it get known? Was it used by the Americans? Yes, yes, yes. So uh, American General Horatio Gates writes a letter to, to British General John Burgoyne. And among other topics, he brings up the issue of Jane McRae. And uh, Burgoyne takes the bait. And he writes back to, to Gates and he says, I, I suspect that you're going to put this in a newspaper. So if you do put this in the newspaper, I want you to print my entire letter so that my words are not distorted. Um, it's terrible what happened to Jane McRae. Um, you know, we didn't pay for any scalps, and we did, you know, arrest the perpetrator. And yes, we did pardon him, but I, we did so because I thought it was best for all parties involved. So he admits to it in this mm. letter, which is then, of course, reprinted. And I think 16 of the 17 newspapers that were active in the summer of 1777. Wow. wow. So, I mean, you know, the British are admitting to this sort of horrible crime. Mm-hmm. And it's not just Jane McRae. Uh, another document that appears in the collection is a really curious project that the Continental Congress had assigned to Benjamin Franklin and uh, that he had um, sought assistance with um, from uh, General uh, Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Um, Lafayette was in Paris uh, on leave. Franklin, of course, was our chief diplomat there. And the Continental Congress had asked Franklin to put together um, a list of British atrocities that would serve as inspiration for illustrations in a book. Wait for it, Jeff. A book designed for children. Wow! Yeah, it was a, the <laughs> a children's book an of illustrated atrocities. children's book of the yeah the big book of British atrocities for you know young American wow, children. Okay, so yeah, we uh, so this kind of propaganda that we've seen in later wars was nothing new. No, <laughs> no, and so you know Franklin and Lafayette uh, make a list of, of various incidents okay. that have taken place. Um, some involved the British. Um, using a really heavy-handed approach. If they wanted to take out an arsenal, they could have landed some Royal Marines and, you know, have taken out the arsenal. But instead, they have these warships at their disposal, and they just lay waste with their cannon to American coastal cities. Right. Um, Thinking of the burning of Charleston in Boston. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other uh, atrocities uh, that are reported. So after the, the Battle of Crooked Billet, um, in New Jersey, the uh, American wounded who have been captured by the British are laying on beds of straw inside a barn. And, you know, according to this, this um, proposed book of British atrocities, the British intentionally set fire to the straw and burned down the barn, mm. the flames consuming all of the uh, American prisoners of war who are sick and injured and unable to remove themselves. Mm. So really terrible things. And, um, you know, for reasons that are lost to time, uh, and I think, unfortunately, you know, because this would have been amazing, this, this book was never published. Uh-huh. But, um, but we have their, 
planned for it, and we have the document where Franklin and Lafayette um, lay out, you know, what the illustrations will be. And it, it just goes to show, frankly, that I think the longer this war drags on, the difficult, the more difficult it will be for the British to do the most important thing for the British to do. They need to win American hearts and minds. Right. I mean, their army is is, is a professional, well-trained force. They can capture territory. They can win battles. They have a pretty terrific win-loss record against the Continental Army. The problem is, you know, when the British Army leaves, everybody stops saying, you know, hooray for King George, and they start saying, God save George Washington instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and instead of making friends and influencing people, um, the British Army, because it has a pretty heavy-handed approach toward the civilian population, alienates people. Uh-huh. And, and so... As the as the as the army continues to make its path through the American continent, and as the years of the war drag on, the number of people who consider themselves loyalists really goes down, uh-huh. and the number of people who are willing um, to support the patriot cause goes up. And stories like the ones that Lafayette and Franklin proposed to tell in their children's book, and stories like, you know, the horrible murder of Jane McRae, I think really help Americans to understand that in this in this war, in this battle, it's not just guys in blue coats and it's not just guys in red coats. These stories help Americans understand that the guys in the blue coats are us, and the guys in the red coats are them. Hmm. Hmm. And as you say, um, a, a complex situation with people supporting independence, people opposed to it, people in the middle, moving over time, though, toward the American cause, involving really, amazingly enough, when you, because it's on American soil, involving the whole American population, one way or another. You, you're, you, you're forced to choose sides. You're forced to act join the uh, Americans, join against the Americans, or you're put in a hard position of trying to avoid either with people on both sides saying you got to choose a side. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay. In this book, one of my favorite documents is has to do with probably the most famous American. You've talked to, you told us a couple of great stories here about Americans that we didn't know about. Mm-hmm. The most famous American of the American Revolution, George Washington. Um, we think of George Washington as a military commander. We think of George Washington as president. One of the documents that you have in here is George Washington's resignation. Yes. Why do you include that in a collection on the American Revolution? Well, in a way, it is the end of the war. Uh, you could look at the, the Treaty of Paris, which is also contained in the volume mm-hmm. as, you know, the official end of the war. Um, after Washington achieves his great victory in 1781 at the Battle of Yorktown, um, it's important that the army stay intact. The, the, the fighting war might largely be over and done with, um, but there still are negotiations that are necessary to bring about peace. And as diplomats in Paris um, continue to hash things out, George Washington is going to march his army north, um, just north of West Point along the Hudson River Mm -hmm. um, in Newburgh, New York. And uh, it's in Newburgh that Washington um, supervises the last encampment of the Continental Army. It's in Newburgh that Washington stares down a uh, rumored conspiracy 
Um, the, the officers of the Continental Army, many of them are griping over issues like pensions and pay. Hmm. And there are rumors that the Army might, you know, march west and leave the United States undefended or even march south, you know, weapons, you know, at the ready to uh, intimidate the Continental Congress to make good on um, the demands of the officers. So a mili- almost a military coup. Yeah, in many respects, yes, that is the fear. And Washington, you know, appears before his officers at Newburgh. And, you know, he stands there, he has prepared remarks, he reads them, he pulls out of his pocket a letter um, that he has received from a member of the Continental Congress. And Washington is trying to reassure his officers that, you know, he hasn't forgotten their needs, that he is appreciative of their sacrifices, that, you know, when the war ends, when the army finally disbands, um, their interests will not be forgotten. Um, but here's George Washington. I mean, he's a man who, for the, the length of the revolution, served without pay. Hmm. Now, he's capable of doing that because he's, you know, practically the richest man in all of Virginia. But he has exposed himself to every hardship. Mm-hmm. He has endured this war um, from almost the very beginning to the end. Um, he's a man who literally has had horses shot out from under him. He's a man who literally has bullet holes in his coat. Hmm. And you know, he tries to read this letter from a member of the Continental Congress assuring him that the needs of the officers and the soldiers of the army have not been forgotten. And he squints down at the man's uh, handwriting, and he has difficulty reading it. And he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a pair of glasses. Now, these glasses are um, a sign of weakness and old age in the 18th century. I mean, there's a real sort of social stigma Mm -hmm. um, attached to wearing glasses. And so for Washington, you know, the strong, robust man to put them on, in in some ways it's an affecting sight, and, and to kind of like diffuse the... The moment Washington says, you know, forgive me, gentlemen, um, while I put on my spectacles, for I have grown not only gray, but also almost blind in your service. Hmm. And there was something about that statement, something about that moment um, where George Washington, I mean, never had these officers, you know, many of them battle hardened men, never had he seemed so big and never had they felt so small. I mean, here was a man who risked everything. Here was a man who served without pay. Here was a man who had, had, you know, dodged bullets. And here were they groveling about pay and pensions. So to the degree that there ever really was a Newburgh conspiracy, it came to an end right there, right then. And when the Treaty of Paris was finally signed, Washington then went about disbanding the Continental Army. Mm -hmm. He said goodbye to his officers at Francis Tavern in New York City. He boarded a barge and was rowed across the uh, Hudson River to the New Jersey shore. And he made his way down toward Annapolis, where the Congress was in session. And uh, it was a, a long sort of halting journey, because wherever Washington went, People wanted to celebrate him. They wanted to celebrate the end mm-hmm. of the, the war for independence. And, you know, there were balls, there were festivals, there were, you know, dances in his honor, banquets, all sorts of celebrations. He finally arrived on December 20th um, at Annapolis, and he sent word to Thomas Mifflin, who at that point was acting as president of Congress. And Mifflin delegated um, two members of Congress, uh, both Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, um, to arrange with Washington, and really I think the right word is choreograph with Washington, 
how he would tender his resignation. Hmm. And, and so we have Washington um, stepping forth on December 23rd, 1783. And uh, it, it's, it's really kind of a dramatic c- ceremony as he enters into what is now the old Senate chamber in the uh, state capitol building in Annapolis, where the, the Continental Congress is meeting. Um, you know, Washington takes off his hat and he bows. And the members of Congress, they take their hats off, but they don't bow in return. Hmm. And the point is, you know, civilian authority is superior to military authority. We're not a military dictatorship. Mm-hmm. The, the elected civilian officials are the ones who call the shots. Hmm. And um, Washington tenders his resignation. Um, he gives a, a speech, which, appear, which appears in this collection. Um, and, you know, in the speech, he, he says all the right things. Um, but at the end, he, he gets choked up. Um, he refers to um, how uh, he, he had been entrusted with the interests of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God. And it, his voice just catches on that. Mm. And, he, and he, he begins to, to weep. Um, you know, it's, it's, this is an affecting moment for him. Think about all that he had seen, all that he had been through, all that he had risked. Hmm. And, and now, you know, sort of the pinnacle, the crowning moment of glory is that he is returning to life as a private citizen. You know, uh, Benjamin West was an American portrait painter who at that time um, was working at uh, London. He was painting portraits of the royal family. And according to a story that Benjamin West later told, um, before this had happened, George III uh, stopped him and asked. He said, I hear a rumor that if, if, if the Americans win this war, that George Washington is going to let go of power and return to private life on his farm. Hmm. And, and West confirms the rumor. He says, you know, yes, sire, you know, that, that is what I understand. Hmm. Um, and... George III sort of, you know, laughs um, almost in disbelief. And he says, if he does that, then truly he is the greatest character of the age. And that's exactly what Washington did. Hmm. And, and I think that's exactly what Washington was. This was not a war for power. This was a war for liberty. Hmm. And once liberty was restored, Washington, having succeeded in winning, you know, this, this epic struggle against the world's most powerful military, returned to his farm and his books and his vine and his fig tree. Mm-hmm. And he was indeed, you know, compared to um, the Roman patriot general, Cincinnatus, um, who had done the, thi- the same thing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. It took that long to find another example of virtue um, that was equal to that of Washington's. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful story. Uh, here in this collection, incredible. Rob McDonald, thank you so much for just re- taking some time to reacquaint us with the wonderful story of the American Revolution, a story that we can continue to find inspiration and hope in. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been us. my pleasure. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans 
to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.